This morning, we are starting a series on the Old Testament book of Esther. It is a powerful story about how God worked behind the scenes in order to deliver the Jewish people from certain annihilation by raising up a young Jewish woman named Esther in the court of the Persian Empire. The Jewish people commemorate this occasion in our day, this deliverance from the decree of Haman, by uh, celebrating the festival called Purim, or Lots, which is marked by great joy and the giving of gifts. Now, in order to understand the message of the book of Esther, we must locate its place within biblical and world history. The time period in which the book of Esther begins is in 483 B.C., under the reign of King Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire. The story takes place in a citadel or a fortified palace in the city of Susa, also called Sushan, which is in modern-day Iran. At this time in history, King Ahasuerus, who also goes by his Greek name Xerxes, is king of the world's most powerful empire. The reason why the Persian Empire and its king is in our story and is in our Bible is because living within this, this Persian Empire's midst is in Susa, where some of God's covenant people, the Jewish people. Now, how did the Jewish people end up in the city of Susa in the Persian Empire? If you recall, the Jews of Judah and Jerusalem were carried away into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar when he sacked the city and burned the temple in 586 B.C. The destruction of Jerusalem was the fulfillment of the covenant curse for the disobedience and sin of the people of God. However, before sending them into exile, God gave them his promise through the prophets that a remnant would one day return to Jerusalem. This was fulfilled in 539 B.C., when Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, conquered the Jewish conquerors, the Babylonians, and set the Jewish people free to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. However, not all of the Jewish people went back to their homeland when the decree was made. Some chose to remain and stayed in Susa. But as we will see, living within this empire, the Persian Empire, under the reign of this king, was a dangerous proposition for those living within its midst. But why? Why was it potentially dangerous for the Jewish people to live within this worldly empire under this ruler? Well, we do know that it, as the story unfolds, there is a decree that will be made against them. The decree will be under the authority of King Xerxes himself. A decree that all the Jewish people are going to be annihilated from this, from the empire. And so we know that this is a dangerous place to be living in. And the author of the book of Esther is going to give us in the first chapter the reasons why this particular empire was dangerous. It was dangerous for God's people the Jewish people, to live within this worldly empire because its ruler possessed absolute power with great wealth. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. 
Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Sushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and his servants, the powers of Persia and Media, that is the military leaders, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, six months. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity and goodwill of the king. In accordance with the law, with the rule for this particular feast, the drinking was not compulsory, that is, it was not restrained. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. In other words... The people who were at this feast could drink as much as they want. Whatever they wanted to drink, the king said they could have it. Kind of like an open bar. But we see in the first eight verses a tremendous amount of time spent on the description on the power and of the great wealth that existed in the Persian Empire, particularly in the seat of Persian power in Susa at the palace. There was a tremendous amount of wealth, and this power was absolute and centered in one person, Xerxes. It is extremely dangerous for the people within, within any empire when a person has that much wealth and that much power. When you take that into consideration and combine it that this wealth and power was... Uh, uh, combined with excessive indulgence and pleasure and luxury, it's all the more dangerous. This was a very, very dangerous time. Just like in our day, if anyone gains too much power, and, and all that power that one possesses today resides in them, and it's unchecked, and they could use it any way they want, it is very dangerous for people living within that empire. And the author of the of the book of Esther in the first eight verses wants to make that very clear to us that this was a very powerful individual with great wealth, which makes it dangerous for those living within that empire. Secondly, it was dangerous for the Jewish people, God's people, to live within this worldly empire because its ruler wielded absolute power unpredictably and with impaired judgment. Verses 9 through 12. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Sarkis, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, 
to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Here we see that the king is in a drunken state. He's been drinking at this feast with other males throughout his through the with other males at this feast. And he decides on the seventh day, after a week of drinking, to bring his beautiful wife before all the drunken men so that everyone can look at her beauty. As he was showing in the previous eight verses the great wonder and splendor of his empire, he now wants to show off his trophy wife. But Vesti refuses. It may be because Queen Vesti did not want to be paraded in front of drunken men. What woman in their right mind would want to do that? But the author doesn't give us a reason as to why Queen Vashti doesn't go. He's not concerned with her motive for not doing it. What he wants to show is the king, Xerxes, and the fact that he was drunk and he became angry. Here is a person in a drunken state using his power and commanding his eunuchs who were in charge of his harem to bring his wife to parade her before drunken men. Why would you do such a thing? It shows that the, the man with great power is not thinking properly. He is using his power unpredictably. And notice as a result, he ends up getting very angry. He's drunk and now he's angry. And he remains angry for the rest of the chapter. I know this because in Esther chapter 2 verse 1... It says this, after these things, that is after chapter 1 is over, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. It appears that after he has removed her from power because of her disobedience, he kind of second guesses and and. and regrets the fact that he had removed her from power once his anger subsides. So he's been angry throughout this whole time when he is uh, refused by Queen Vashti to come to the party when he asks her. All of this is to show is that this, this king, this ruler, wielded his absolute power unpredictably and with impaired judgment. Whenever a ruler has great power and great wealth, and he uses it unpredictably and with impaired judgment, it is never good for the people living within that empire. Thirdly, it was dangerous for God's people to live within this worldly empire because its ruler could have his absolute power skillfully manipulated by others. Verses 13 to 21. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Memekin answered before the king and the princes. Now Memekin is one of the, he is one of the wise men. He's one of the king's princes who had access to the king all the time. 
He said this, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all of the people who are in all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but they did not come. This very day, Mimikin continues, the noble ladies of Persia and Midia will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, he says, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all of the empire, for it will be great, all the wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memekin. Here we see one of the king's closest advisors, Memekin, manipulate the king and his power. How so? First of all, it's important to notice that he says to the king that when your queen disobeyed you, that wasn't just something that was bad for you. It's bad for the whole kingdom because all of the princes and all of the people and all of the provinces, all of the women are going to rebel against their husbands. They're not going to submit to them and they're not going to give the husbands proper respect. Now, why on earth would Memekin ever think that? Why would Memekin come to the conclusion that all the women are going to do what Vashti did? You know why he did so? It was because he was paranoid. Memekin was paranoid. He wanted control. And Memekin's manipulation has its roots in his own personal insecurity. He wanted to maintain control, and he was afraid that somehow by, the, by Vashti disobeying the king, that all women throughout the empire were going to do the same. But there was nothing that would lead anyone to logically to come to that conclusion. Memekin is very insecure, and he wants power, and he's afraid he's going to lose it. And so he wants to manipulate the king in order to ensure all women everywhere are going to be subject to their husbands, which we, he himself apparently was one. And the fact that he was manipulating the power of the king is also clearly seen by understanding this. In the Persian Empire, Persian kings often selected their wives among the noble people within their empire. Specifically, among the seven advisors that always had access to the king. It would, be, it would be safe for the king to select a wife from among one of the nobles that he knew and could trust. And Memekin knew that. And Memekin wanted to solidify more power within the kingdom. The best way to do that would be to manipulate the situation that the king is now experiencing because of the wife's disobedience and use that to further his power by getting the king to remove his wife and have a vacancy so that he would have to marry someone else. And Memekin was hoping that the king would marry one of his daughters so that he, in turn, could get more power as a result. 
Here we're seeing the author tell a story how the king's power could be easily manipulated. And whenever a king's power could be easily manipulated, it is going to be dangerous for people within that kingdom who live in it. Fourthly, it was dangerous for God's people, the Jewish people, to live within this worldly empire because the ruler's will became the law of the land. Verse 22, then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, the king did, to each province in its own script and to every people in their own language that each man should be master in his house and speak in the language of his own people, not of the wife's language, of his own language. To understand what the, what the king is doing here by this decree You have to understand that the Persian Empire is an empire that is vast. And there are many, many people from many, many different ethnicities that spoke many different languages within it. Within such an empire, the likelihood of different people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities who spoke different languages to marry one another. So it would be possible for a Jewish male to marry someone who was a, a, a woman, a female, who was not Jewish within that empire. And oftentimes, you wouldn't know who, you would ha- know who had control and power within that household based on the language that the family spoke. So if you lived in the Persian Empire at that time and you walked into a home and a husband and a wife spoke two different languages because they came from two different ethnicities and two different cultural backgrounds, if their children spoke the language of the mother, then that would be, the, that would be an indication that the uh, cultural, uh, religious background of the mother, of the wife, was dominant within that family. The king understood this, and what he's saying is, I want all the men, I want all the men who live within my empire, I want them to, I want them to speak every single one of them in his language, not his wife's. I want him to, I want him to speak in his language, and he's got to speak according to his own people, not his wife's people. Because if the men speak of his language and not his wife's, then he knows that men are the one who are dominant and are assuming the leadership position because it is their language that's being passed down to the wife and to the children. It was just the king's way of saying, you men need to be in control and subdue your wives. And one of those signs that would demonstrate that is that if, the, if you're married to a foreign woman, a woman that is different in culture and language than you, we would know that you had power over them when they spoke your language. This was dangerous because now the emperor, the king, Xerxes, his, his will became law of the land. And whenever a ruler and his will becomes the law of the land, it becomes very, very dangerous with, for the people living within that land. What was true back then is true today. When people and leaders and rulers have absolute power and great wealth, when leaders and rulers have absolute power and they exercise that power unpredictably with impaired judgment, 
when rulers today have their power skillfully manipulated by others, and when rulers who have absolute power and their will become law of the land, it is very dangerous for people living within that land. It is this kind of environment that sows the seeds and creates an environment where a decree will come where all the Jewish people will, will be annihilated. Very, very dangerous. Xerxes and his closest advisors here were not above using or misusing the tremendous power that they held. If they used their power to demand the respect and submission of their own wives, to what further misuse of power would they stoop? And we see that today as well. And throughout history we see examples of people, of leaders who had absolute power, who misused and exercised their power unpredictably who had their power manipulated by others and whose will became law. Think of these individuals, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Idi Amin. These are just a few of examples of people who had absolute power and abused it and misused it And many people, as a result of their leadership and the decrees that they have made, died as a result. This was a very dangerous time for the Jewish people. And if someone becomes very powerful today and has absolute power within their own realm, it is dangerous for those people living within that realm today as well. It's always been that way. And here we see the author telling us that the Jewish people are living in a land that is very, very, very dangerous for them to be living in. The seeds have been sown for a decree like the king of Xerxes where an annihilation of all people can take place. In this story, the author of Esther uses confrontation between Xerxes and Vashti to illustrate the tyrannical leadership of the Persian king and his closest advisors. But most of us are not going to be put in positions of such power. But that does not mean this story is not relevant to us. Because the author chose an illustration that involved husbands and wives in the Persian Empire, it would be wise to consider the issue of power and leadership in marriages as well. It is interesting to observe that both the first chapter of Esther and the letter written to the church at Ephesus in the New Testament discuss the subject of a wife's respect for her husband. But the difference between these passages in how wifely respect is attained is significantly different. In the passage of the book of Esther, a wife's respect for her husband is accomplished by force, an order from a royal decree. In Ephesians chapter 5, it is much, much different. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, it says this. Submit to one another in the fear of God, or out of a reverence of Christ. Husbands and wives ought to submit to one another out of a reverence for Jesus Christ. Well, what would that look like? The rest of the passage explains it. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, 
So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does his church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let, one, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the, wife, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respect here is to be the response of a woman toward a man who loves her as Christ loved the church. The New Testament reveals a principle of reciprocity, mutual submission to one another as the basis for a woman's respect for her husband. A well-known evangelical scholar once said, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband, but I believe, but I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know that when I am worthy of submission, my wife submits, and when I am worthy of it, she does not. When I am unworthy of it, she does not. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy of her submission. How different is it to be the attitude of a Christian man toward his wife compared to the men of the Persian court? In a society where domestic violence pervades even Christian homes, the church must not allow its biblical teaching on marriage to be misunderstood as a teaching of male dominance that justifies the abuse of domestic power or that tones down the husband's responsibility of self-sacrifice for the good of his wife. Esther chapter 1 teaches that whether as a husband or a wife in the privacy of your own home, whether you're a spiritual leader of the church, a CEO of a large corporation, or the head of a, of a state or of a great nation, we are to resist the temptation of misusing our power for the satisfaction of ungodly lust in any of its forms. May that be the truth today in every single one of our lives. No, we're all not going to be like Xerxes. He had power and he misused it. And it, the consequences of it were great because he had so much influence and power. But every single one of us does have power to some degree. We have our marriage. We have our relationships with others in the workplace. And we have a responsibility before God to make sure that we handle that responsibility in a way that honors and pleases him. May that be the case in all of our lives today. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless, with, bless you and be with you this day. Amen.